0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So that leads me to the kind of the next part of our time together that I, I have the privilege of leading us through, and that is that we're going to open the Bible together, and as is our custom, we walk through passages of Scripture, and in this case, we've been walking through an entire book of the Bible. So i want to invite you to Matthew chapter 18. That's the end of the chapter that we'll be focusing on today, and, and so if you've been with us the last year and a half, we've been walking through this good news that is what literally the word gospel means. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are four accounts of the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is and what he's done for us. And Matthew, one of Jesus' apostles, is inviting us to hear about all that Jesus is and all that he's done for us. And in our journey through the gospel of Matthew, we find ourselves in what is like the fourth of five major sermons or discourses, major speeches, if you will. And this, the fourth, the entirety of the 18th chapter, is about the community of faith, that is the church. It's the second time that the word church shows up in the Gospel of Matthew, in in that sense, in the New Testament as a whole. So that Matthew would help us to see and envision for what the disciples, uh, envision what the disciples would begin to participate in and belong to in light of Christ. And so we're invited also to envision what it is that the church ought to be, how it functions. Now up to this point, again, you can see how these, these are laid out, the fourth time this, if you find your, yourself in Matthew chapter 18, um, don't be afraid of the table of contents or Google, or if you don't have that, there's a paperback Bible that'll get you access to that in the, in the tray of the chair in front of you, uh, and we just simply want you to follow along and make that our gift to you, and, and if you have followed along, you'll see in the very first verse of chapter 19, if you want to look at that, it'll be the end of what we're reading today, it says, now when Jesus had finished these sayings... This phrase shows up five times, hence why I say there are five major discourses. It isn't necessarily that Matthew laid it out in, in these five sections, although some people think that's the case. Think of it as these are, these are meant to be a major chunk that work together. That is, that even though we've broken up the gospel of Matthew into weekly segments, and in, last, in the last few weeks, even the chapter 18 into weekly segments, they fit together as a whole, so, a few weeks ago, we saw that the foundation of this community starts with a question that the Apostle Peter asks, who will be great in the kingdom? The, the Gospel of Mark tells us they were, actually, uh, they were actually asking who will be great among us, uh, which of us is the greatest, and Jesus gives them the building blocks of greatness and the nature of the kingdom and the nature of the community of faith, that is the church. And the first one is that they would be childlike. He says he brings a child before them and says the greatest is the least. And and so we get this picture of humility as a component of greatness. Lowliness as a component of greatness in this otherworldly kingdom. Then we see this idea of holiness, the understanding of sin and how devastating sin is. And so if you're not a Christian or you're not a... You wouldn't call yourself a believer, I'm really glad you're here, and you'll hear us use that word sin a lot, and you'll hear me use it a lot, especially in this chapter, and you might wonder, like, what is Christian, what are these Christians and their fixation with sin, and and the reason is this is how Jesus describes a way in which, or helps us to understand a way in which that Jesus comes to do something for us, and so if you break a law, it's a crime, but if you rebel against God, the creator, it's a sin. So it maybe seem kind of like archaic religious language, but it's a way to describe how it is that our rebellion against God has its consequences and resolution. And and the community of faith will realize how devastating it is to us, such that if we sniff it in ourselves, he says, in your eye, you would gouge it out, in your hand, you would cut it off. And if you saw that it was going to harm someone else, Jesus says he would come with vengeance against that person. And then lastly, we see that Jesus tells us that we are a, a community shaped by him as a good shepherd, that he seeks and saves the lost. He goes after, he leaves the 99 and celebrates over seeking out the lost sheep. Now, last week we saw that that means there's a specific position that, that the community of faith has towards, let's say, the unrepentant. And there's this picture of restoration, the That when, not if, but when we we are forming one another in the way that we help and guide one another to help one another see in ourselves or see in others what we cannot see in ourselves. And so then this passage from verse 21 to the end of the chapter, verse 35, would be about unforgiveness. If last week was about unrepentance and restoration, then this last section in the community of faith, we get a picture of what forgiveness really is. So beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came up up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. As I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. pray that this becomes more than ink on a page for us, but even this morning becomes the very word of God to us. You get to hear a really great sermon today, because I just read you one. I love that. Whenever we get to read the teachings of Jesus or even in the book of Acts, whenever the text is literally a recorded oratory of one of the apostles. It takes a tremendous amount of burden off of my own shoulders. You're going to hear a great sermon today. You just heard it um, because you heard Jesus describe it. And in so, we're in, in, this, in this little sermon at this parable that Jesus is known for, that allegory, a picture of the kingdom, Jesus gives us a window into forgiveness. Let's call it one of the last little a little, one of the last essential components of the community of faith, that is the church. A component, a foundational element of what it means to follow Jesus. So in the first few verses, you see it's framed by or set up by a question in which Peter asks the limits of forgiveness. And then starting in verse 23, all the way on, Jesus tells us a parable, a powerful, hard-hitting parable full of vengeance and mercy that is meant to be a motivation for forgiveness. And so up to this point in this chapter, we've been introduced to what it means to be servants of, disciples of the Messiah, Jesus, the one who has come to fulfill all the promises of God, to restore his people. And in so he stresses up to this point, Jesus has stressed the, the humility, the, the experience of holiness as we saw and, and even compassion now and forgiveness in the act of restoration inside this community. We're meant to see the values of the kingdom in a way that are contrary and countercultural, antithetical even to the values of the world. The value of uprightness alongside an eagerness and readiness to forgive and restore others. Now, the point of the story, the parable you just read, ought to be sort of evident. That is, to be a disciple is to suffer offense. And as a disciple of Jesus, having been forgiven by God of an unpayable debt, we are called to, motivated to, sent out to forgive others from the heart. That's it. That's it. That, that As disciples of Jesus, this parable calls into view our understanding of being forgiven of so much that it would be absurd or ludicrous, contradictory, as you saw as kind of the the juxtaposition of someone being forgiven so much and then yet choking and torturing someone else for something that was so little. Jesus demands of his disciples the same kind of forgiveness. And so last week we saw the process of of confrontation, formative discipline, but ultimately to win and restore a brother and sister as a way that kind of of images and, and testifies to God's kingdom here on earth in the local church. And here we see... A response. It's as if Peter is saying, okay, let's say, let's say you're right, Jesus. Let's say verses 15 through 20, this, this beautiful picture of restoration, winning our brother back when they, when they have offended. Let's say it works. What then? Jesus is kind of like, well, you forgive. And, and, and Peter is it, it comes to Jesus as if to say, all right, so how many times? How many times then? If this is the picture of restoration amongst the people of God, how often should we do that? Peter wants to know the limits of forgiveness. And like many other times, the apostles serve in our place because we do too. Really, how, how many times? And Jesus wants Peter to know the character of the one who forgives. Peter wants to look at the sin, the offense, and take stock of the limits to which, or the limits we should set in place that we are to be forgiving inside of. And Jesus doesn't want us to calculate the, necessarily the, the sin, the forgiveness and its limits. Jesus wants us to ponder and to consider the character of the one who forgives. So, you see a question. We see a picture of the kingdom and the king. We see a picture of the debt and the debtor. And then so, as we kind of kind of walk through here, I want to want to show you what what I think I, I see as kind of some of the some of the wisdom that's been passed on to me about the character and nature of forgiveness, how it plays out in our life, uh, how ultimately, even here, it, it's a discipline of the church. We often think of forgiveness as kind of a private, internal, eternal practice, whether or not you hold a grudge or not. And yet, it, it, we find it in this chapter about the community of faith. That is, forgiveness is a discipline. It is an act that, that you and I will do in the same way that the local church gathers together in, in freedom in some form or fashion around the world to, in some way, make much of Jesus through singing right? Just like we did in the, just in the New Testament, or, and, to, and to somehow open the Scripture and ponder the teaching of Jesus and, and who, who he is and what he's done. So also, the same discipline of you sitting here receiving God's word, we're invited to realize that we are also invited into a, a discipline of forgiveness and of restoration, because that's exactly what the heart of God is towards us. So first, the question. All right, Jesus, what are the limits now, the, the rabbinic history would have, would have kind of used moderation here. All right, forgive someone, but reasonably so. And that makes sense. Forgive a person, okay, don't be vengeful. Uh, even the rabbinical tradition uh, that, that maybe these first listeners would have been familiar with would have, in some cases, said, okay, forgive, let's say, three times, right? More than once, show mercy. After all, who's perfect, right? And Peter, kind of anticipating that and knowing that Jesus has this way of confounding them at every single turn, tries to get ahead and like, okay, okay, here's what I'll pitch to Jesus. How many times should I forgive? Seven? Now, in the history of the Old Testament, seven would have been the number of perfection. And so it's as if Peter comes and says, like, you, you, can, you, kinda, you can almost hear his smugness. Okay, Jesus, we're going to restore uh, one another, win one another back to this, this household of faith. Uh, how many times should I do it? Should I do it the perfect number, Jesus, seven times? And it's hard to translate this next bit because it's, it's not necessarily meant to be a literal number. It's meant to be like perfection squared. It's like perfection's perfection. And so your translation might say 490 times, which is seven times 70, right? Or if you read the ESV, it's, it's 77 or seven sevens. Like it's this, this idea is, okay, you think you know the, the right amount, because after all, you could keep track along one to seven. You wouldn't lose count. But the point is that whether it's 490 or 77, the perfection squared, it's more than you can count. The idea is that you wouldn't really be sure how many times you had forgiven a person. You're going to forgive someone to perfection's perfection to the point where You're just going to forgive without keeping track at all. After all, uh, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church that one of the components of love that is personified in Jesus is that love keeps no record of wrongs. And so while Peter wanted to know the limits of forgiveness, Jesus tells a parable so that he would contemplate the character of the one who forgives. So now let's look at the kingdom of the king. The king is just. Look there, therefore, the kingdom of heaven. So this is a parable about the reign of God in, in, in all of eternity, but also the reign of God that is pictured as an embassy in the local church. The kingdom that is the, eternally and ultimately, and, 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 fi- and in finite means and imperfectly in the followers of Jesus, might be compared to, and he tells us a story. Imagine a king, right? We have the, a king and a kingdom, and he wished to settle accounts with his servants. The first thing you see here is that the king is just. You're meant to look through this parable and see the character of God as one who is just. And this is especially important. If you wouldn't saw your, call yourself a Christian, the axiom under here is this, that sin demands a payment. That is, rebellion and offense against God demands a payment. Now, I know if, maybe if, if, if you're new to the church or that just sounds overly religious or archaic or we've progressed beyond that, I want you to know that isn't even, in in this sense, it isn't even uh, exclusively a Christian declaration. And here's how you know anytime that you see anything done to anyone that you sense is unjust or unfair, in your own heart, something deep out, something cries out, there must be payment. Someone's got to pay for this. There is no human who is beyond this axiom. Anytime anyone has been hurt or harmed, we sense that hurt or harm is coming from someone else. There is a response. And that perfectly good, I believe it images and reflects the heart of God of justice. There must be payment. There must be payment. Just listen to the voice in the public square. This is, I believe, at least practically for us today, this is an invitation for a distinctly Christian view of this. And the world is in desperate need of it. Because while most of the world would reject the religious kind of jargon that they would sense in this, they love this. And just publicly, here's like as a, in the world, the culture right now doesn't really have a high view of justice or atonement or forgiveness or absolution or restoration or reconciliation. Really strong in the blame game, uh, but not really strong in the restoration, reconciliation, and forgiveness game. And I want you to know that's not an accident. That's our game. That's, think of this as a local church. That's in our chapter. That, this is the picture of the local church being the ambassador of an otherworldly concept. So the king is just. And I want you to know that whatever is broken, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to many of you about forgiveness. And, and I, I guess I would just kind of start the rest of our time together uh, by just saying, I know that many of you, like if you're holding a grudge, there's someone you're, you're keeping at arm's length, someone that you're holding something against. Um, I want you to, on one hand, recognize that there is a good and righteous reflection of the character of God in that, that does not abide in sin and injustice. It can't tolerate it. And you reflect the heart of God in that. But on the other hand, I know that this hard-hitting picture of how unforgiveness in your heart and mine, in this sense, brings upon torture and the wrath of God, I know right now for many of you, you can't imagine, right now you can't even picture forgiving that person of that thing that they did. And all I'm asking you to do today, I'm not, I'm not saying this is all going to go away and be perfect and easy. All I'm asking you to do today is to consider what this parable has to offer us, that we look away from that offense and look at the character of the one who has the ability to make all things new. And remember, he is just. He is just. That, that thing in your own heart that's like someone must pay, there is no one, there's no one who feels that more deeply than the righteous character of God. So we get a picture of a just king. He wants to settle accounts, so he brings into uh, his presence one of his servants who owes 10,000 talents. Now, again, this is going to be hard to translate. A talent is a measure of weight, and, and uh, the, the measure of weight across the Testament, Old, Old Testament and New Testament, it's going to be hard to track, Um, And so you're gonna find varying accounts of this, but think of this as would have been a weight or measure of silver or gold. So any sort of translation to the modern dollar value is gonna be somewhat subjective. So I'm gonna try to stay away from that kind of, because you'll see estimates of like, it could be hundreds of millions of dollars all the way up to over a trillion dollars, right? And and when he says 10,000 talents, think of it in this way. It's almost as if Jesus is saying something like, and the king wanted to settle accounts, so he brought in his servant who owed him a bazillion dollars. Right? It's allegorical. It's, it's meant to be hyperbole. It, and, and so it'd be kind of like if I said, what's the modern value of a gozillion dollars, right? Or a, a bajillion dollars, right? Like, you hear what I'm saying? Like, that's a made-up number. It's a, because what is it? it it's meant to be it's like, it's more than can be calculated. That's, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's simply saying there is an unpayable sum now, you can kind of see into the nature of the king, the kingdom, and the debt, and the debt are all right there. One is that this is not just some, you know, measly little servant, because after all, like, if you think of, if you think of this being billions or even a trillion dollars, I mean, the like, the national budget at the moment is between four and five trillion dollars a year. So just think for a moment, what would it take for you to amass a trillion dollars of debt? It's impossible, right? Like, You would have to be, you couldn't be a measly servant, you would have to already be someone who is entrusted with a trillion dollars, or in this case, a bazillion dollars, right? And so you're meant to see that this is an unpayable debt, that's the first thing, but also, it's a debt that would have threatened the kingdom. It is not insignificant. There was no kingdom in that, right? Think of it as like, is there any... Is there any economy or government or or nation state in the world that could just eat a bazillion dollars right now, right? And you're meant to go like, whoa, I don't. Th- that would hurt. And in so like insofar as this is hard to, it's subjective to translate. It's a It's more than you can count. It's more than can be paid. Uh, some some. Some of these are like, they think of it in terms of a wage that a servant would have. Like, it would take hundreds of thousands of years for this person to pay this off, right? It's unpayable. You don't you think, again, unpayable. If you, if you hear, it's going to take me 100,000 years to pay this off, and you think like, I got it. Like, I don't, right? You don't, I don't think you understand how years and you work. That's not, right? It's unpayable. It's unbelievable. And since, obviously, he could not pay, verse 25 says, his master ordered justice you hear it? Put this man into slavery with even his family. That's how just this is. This will be paid for. But the servant in verse 26 does something interesting. He falls on his knees and implores him, have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. And then you get a picture into the heart of the king. Look at verse 27. And out of pity for him. Compassion. Literally, what he was seeing stirred his insides and so I think what we find here are three components of forgiveness in the heart of the king and they're all right there in that one verse verse 27 the first component pity or compassion the second component release set set setting the debtor free and three absorbing or canceling forgiving in this case the debt I want to speak on that just a little bit as, you, as we kind of think about the character of the king that's visible here. First, he has compassion, and I want you to see that forgiveness is seeing and identifying with the humanity of the offender. This is one of the three components here, but it might it might even serve as a replacement for what you understand as forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive? First and foremost, it's to see the humanity. To see yourself, that, that phrase there, that, like, his heart went out to him. You'll hear one of the, uh, a couple of the translations say. To see, and your heart goes out, you have compassion, you have sympathy, empathy for this offender. That is, you see yourself in the other. Now notice, this is going to be one of the most difficult things. Compassion is seeing the humanity and the experience of another. It's seeing your heart goes out. And if you're not, even right now, if I were to say, like, what's the worst thing ever done to you? And who did it to you? Right? Even then, here's our tendency. Our tendency is to simply look at the other and think that their sin defines them. Right? They did this awful thing to me, but in the end, like that's who they are. They're just an awful wicked person. Because whenever you see the sin of someone else and the way they've wronged or the injustice they've committed, that injustice envelops them. They become, one commentary says that they become like a a cartoon character, right? With some sort of hilariously exaggerated features, right? Like that's just who they are. That's, That's who they are. But when you look at sin in yourself, well, it's complicated, right? That person did this wicked thing because they're just a wicked person. They're, you know, they lied because they're a liar. They're, they, they're awful. They, they stole because they're a thief. That they're, no, they're good for nothing. And then someone comes to you and says, like, hey, what about that awful thing that you did? And you're like, well, there were circumstances. Do you see here that Jesus is telling the parable so that you will have a juxtaposition of the exact same sin, namely, in this case, a debt Right, if you're, if you're a scientific nerd uh, here, um, then in this case, debt is the control group. It's the thing that the two juxtaposed cases have in common. They were both a debt. The variable is the one that was offended. The variable is the one who is owed. One is a just king and one, as we see, is a wicked servant. And notice how he's, he's, he's doing something brilliant for us here. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to stink at putting it into words here, but like this idea that like we regularly think it's about debt and not about the character of the people involved. And what Jesus wants us to see here is the character of the king is the operative piece. It is the variable. Because the servant happily will look at his own offense and receive grace. But look at the exact same offense, the control group, and do what? Be vengeful. And so the first component of forgiveness is to see the humanity of the offender. I know you can't imagine it, because it seems, like, again, because your focus is on what that person has done. But here's the thing. You are capable of the exact same things, you just haven't had the circumstances or opportunity. This parable is kind of like I, I use this as an example of the, the first two chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, this theologically robust picture of the gospel in this most prominent central church in, in the known world at that time. And the first chapter of the book of Romans is a trap the first chapter of the book of Romans says that you, you know the glory of God and, and when you see creation, people have rebelled against the creator and, and they have swapped out. Instead of loving and choosing the creator, they choose the creation. They love and serve the creation and he gives these pictures of it and people usually go like, see, this is wickedness. This is awful. And then chapter two begins with the spring of the trap, right? And the idea is that like, you get this picture, and you, you, who pass judgment on those things, are doing the same thing. Why? Because it is our nature to see the sin in others and think it is awful and inhumane, but see our own sin and think, oh, I mean, there's, I'm complex. you know. I, there's a, there, was a, there were many different factors. But just notice that bias in us, that idea that like, the sin of others is really grotesque, but our own is not that bad will hinder us from experiencing and passing on true forgiveness. Because true forgiveness, we see here, starts with compassion. This is profound for us. Our heart goes out. An illustration, kind of a side note. When we minimize our own sin, we become hyper-aware of sin in others. And often... We become hyper-aware of the sin in others that we are currently minimizing. I'll give you an example. Uh, I've gotten to see this. I remember I was talking to someone uh, several years ago, uh, more than a decade ago, and this person, this was in the local church, and this person was just like really, really angry about this other person who they said was a control freak. Do you know the only people who are annoyed by control freaks? there it comes there you got it control freaks this person complaining about this other person as a control freak had a reputation for being the same way do you know who are do you know the people who are really annoyed by people who are opinionated he's so opinionated he's such a know-it-all right (laughs) do you know the only people bothered by you know laid-back people are never i've never heard a laid-back person say that like oh yeah what who cares the only people bothered by opinionated people are people who are equally or more opinionated. You get it? Because we see it in someone else and it's annoying. And it's possible, as we see here, that the parable like, with profound clarity shows us we are often the most frustrated in the thing that's probably true about us that we want to deny. I don't know. think in light of this parable, maybe stop choking people. Over the stuff that you do regularly. Let me put it this way: I learned this uh, when I, again, when I, when I, when I kind of saw that play out in that in that relationship as it became kind of profound to me, is that like I'll use myself as an example, and then I'll invite you to apply it to the people around you. But I don't mind. I, this is not an if. This is a when. Right? It's not if things happen. If human beings are sinful and interact, it's like when. When that happens. So I don't mind throwing myself under the bus here. Um, I learned this. I learned this a while back, but all of you people in this room that annoy me, again, I'm throwing myself on the bus here, are simply somehow displaying traits that I really wish were not true in myself. I give it back to you. All the things about me that annoy you, even right now, are likely things that you wish were not true about yourself. And this parable offers us an insight into that. That forgiveness will only be possible. Giving and receiving mercy and grace will only be possible with compassion. And maybe just, maybe instead of choking me and me choking you, how about we repent? How about we put ourselves in one another's shoes. And maybe think about canceling the things that we're holding against one another because God has put these people in your life in order to bring about resolution, forgiveness here. Uh, God has put those especially annoying people in your life to teach you a lesson about mercy. He did it. Don't be mad at them. He did it. Uh, you especially see this, and I, I, when I meet with couples, I see this all the time, you especially see this with, like, I don't know, with married couples, uh, hey, warning, you can bring this back to me, but your daughter or son will marry probably the polar opposite of you, like the most annoying thing about you, uh, like, they're going to go find that, and it's going to, yeah, yeah, hopefully, some of you are like, oh, my goodness, uh, yeah, your problem with your in-laws is you, I mean, they're messed up, but so are you, you get the idea? Now, you can either choke the life out of them, let them choke the life out of you, or look at them and realize that there's parts of that, at least a little bit, a part of that in yourself. You see yourself in them. And when you do, you step towards the heart of God and his compassion towards us. So first, forgiveness is seeing and identifying with the humanity of the offender. Even the worst you can imagine is still a weak and frail, we saw this in, right in this chapter, person in need, just like you. Second component here is, forgiveness is releasing the offender. So look, it says that he had pity, compassion, and then released him. That's the second part. He, he released him. It, it was an act of the will. It was an, an active participation in freeing that other person. Now, I don't know what that will be for you, but forgiveness is releasing the offender. It's, it's saying, I, I will let this person go. I will not hold this over this person. I will intentionally, I will, I will take steps, intentional acts in my own heart and life, to where this person will not be dragging this around. Even if it is that they pay, even if it is that they make some sort of amends, you still at some point go, you will be free. Now I'll say more about that in a moment, but but think of this as like. I know for many of you, like this, this is this might be the most powerful thing you hear me say. It's like you might say, "Oh yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, I've forgiven that person. I'm not holding a grudge against them. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to just like walk around angry about that person." But but you know, in certain little ways, you're holding on to you like you you have a grip on it, and you're holding them hostage. They're your prisoner, right? you get the picture of choking. You're like, I'm, uh, yes, they're, they're in my grip. I, I, and in that moment, what you're saying is, I don't really trust God to control the situation. I don't really trust God to be just over the situation. And because I don't trust the king to be just, because I don't trust the, the justice and goodness of the king, I'm gonna do it myself. I'm going, to, I'm going to be a jailer. So yeah, maybe I'm not mad anymore necessarily about this particular thing, but I'm gonna re- retain control over this. I'm going to make sure there are guidelines under my watch and my care that would keep this from ever happening again. You see what I mean? And forgiveness, true forgiveness from the heart, as we see in that last verse, is releasing the offender. Look at the heart of the father, look at the heart of the good and righteous and just king. To account for the debt and yet set the person free. Here's the third part, is that forgiveness is absorbing the cost of the offense. So you saw that? He had pity, compassion, second, he released him, and then third, he forgave, canceled, absorbed the debt. When we pass on forgiveness, it's not as though the offense disappears. The analogy I usually use is like, uh, you're, all, you're all holding a smartphone. Uh, it's just, just kind of one of the most expensive things that all of us are carrying around most of the time. Um... And, and so just imagine if I walked up to you and somehow intentionally or unintentionally, whatever accident, I don't know, knocked the phone out of your hand and it fell down and blew into a million pieces, right? And now imagine, whether it was intentional or not, that, it really doesn't matter. And I said, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? Now, someone's going to have to pay for that phone. Someone's going to have to cover the cost. Forgiveness is when the one who is offended absorbs the cost. Because after all, just forgiving me doesn't make the phone reappear. It doesn't make it come back. But instead, true forgiveness in that particular case is to to say, I will cancel the debt. I will forgive you. I will take, I will absorb this into myself. Now imagine, I know for some of you this, this means that in absorbing the cost, I know for some of you you can't imagine forgiving certain people of certain things. And all I'll tell you is that the beauty of, of these things working together, compassion, setting them free, and absorbing the cost, gives us a picture of the, the, what we describe as the loving kindness of God. The Old Testament describes God as being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's not something that happens in a day, right? You, even that language is, is something that happens over a prolonged period of time. So also it is with forgiveness. You'll have to cancel the debt tomorrow too. You'll have to absorb the cost, because some debts can't be absorbed all at once, right? Because remember, if I, you know, if, I, if I broke your phone, you might be able to absorb that quickly. I don't know how much cash you have in your pocket, right? But what if I burned your house down? And I said, will you forgive me? For you to forgive me of such an offense would take some time to pay off, would it not? It would take a while to absorb. And hopefully that gives you kind of a window even into maybe your own soul of why some things have been hard for you to let go, hard for you to forgive, because they can't be paid off in a moment. Anyone who tells you that is is not is minimizing the cost. Sometimes it takes, not sometimes, it regularly takes daily, moment-by-moment moment commitments to cancel the debt. And there are many ways in which we do it. We absorb the cost. We refuse to pass the cost on to them in forgiveness. Forgiveness is when we say, I'll cover it. Now, here's the trick. It's possible to say that you're doing that, but then find ways to make people pay. I'll give you some of the most prominent examples I see in my own heart in unforgiveness and just in my own experience of interacting with people. You'll say, I forgive this person, but I'm going to make them pay by slandering them or gossiping about them. I forgive this person, but I'm never letting them back into my life in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to make them pay. And we have a profound manipulative ability to hold things against people in a way that shows up elsewhere. Right? Even in, even in weird, like, oh, man, even... even I'll give you an example. I saw, you know, a while back, there was, I was speaking to a person and they were having conflict with in-laws, um, as, as one would, praise God, for in-laws. Um, and so this person was having conflict and, and the mother-in-law was kind of just overindulging the children and, and that family which was just being kind of permissive about certain things. And when, when there was disgust, this, this, uh, this mother-in-law said to the daughter-in-law and son, um, I'm just doing whatever I can so that you'll never feel like my mother-in-law made me feel. I'll never be able to let that go. Right? So just picture this. She was being kind. She was being generous as a way to make her mother-in-law pay. Do 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 you see that in your own life? It looks like a good and nice thing and in reality it's just your way to hold something against something or someone that someone did against you. This explains most of what we do. A fear, right? A need to get back. But look through the lens of the character of this king and see that the debt and the debtor are not the ultimate focus but the character of the king. And through him we see compassion, we see a release, and we even see the king absorbing Remember, a a cost that was dangerous to his kingdom. So let me give you some observations in light of this. Forgiveness is an act of repentance and faith. Look how this parable connects the forgiveness, or in this case, the unforgiveness of this servant, to the forgiveness that he had experienced from the king. And look how Jesus, with very explicit words, says, this is how we relate to the father. If you will not relate in forgiveness to your brother or sister, then you have, in that sense, not related to the father on the basis of grace. You are somehow coming to the father with this whole other set of of measurements rather than his grace, rather than his compassion, rather than what he has paid to restore you. And so, forgiveness is an act of repentance and faith. The anger of the king was that the servant did not act in a way that was consistent with the way that the king had treated the servant. And the problem was that forgiveness of the king did not flow through the forgiveness of the servant because the servant had lost sight of what he had received from the king. So too is unforgiveness. And to forgive is an act of faith in the forgiveness that we have received, which will give you a window into unforgiveness Unforgiveness is an act of rebellion. It's a way of saying, forget you, God. I I do not receive your forgiveness. I I am going to hold, I will be judge over the universe. You will not. You're unjust. I am judge. You get the idea? And that's why the penalty is so severe here. Forgiveness is an act of faith. In the same way that the shepherd pursues, we saw a couple weeks ago, pursues the lost, so also the king shows compassion to forgive. And that means the community, community of faith. The church is doing the same thing. And you might ask, well, how will I know that that person I I forgave won't take advantage of me? Well, on one hand, you know they will, because they are as sinful as you are. But on the other hand, it's an act of faith and the practice and discipline of the community to repent and receive the forgiveness that God gives us. It's an act of trust. Will they disappoint you? Yes. But remember, Jesus will not. And your act, like the act of faith in forgiveness is not trusting in the person. It's trusting in Jesus. Our forgiveness that we give to one another is not that the person is righteous. It's that Jesus is. We absolutely know the offender's not righteous. That's what, we know that because they've offended. And yet, think of it, act, forgiveness is an act of faith in Jesus. Even if, even for some of you, even if it's like a small step of faith, just a small, like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to hold that grudge right now for the next five seconds, right? Again, not because they don't deserve it. They, they absolutely do. We know God is just. We know God keeps accounts. It's just that we believe that Jesus had paid them. Here's the more hard-hitting one. Unforgiveness leads to torture. Unforgiveness leads to torture. You see it first in the wickedness of the servant to choke this other servant who has a payable sum. It's significant, but it's still payable as opposed to the unpayable sum of the first servant. But you also see it at the very end, don't you? For us to not forgive demonstrates that we have not received the forgiveness that God freely gives us in Christ. And so, in the same way that to forgive is an act of faith, to trust in the king and his mercy and grace, that it's sufficient, that his justice is good, that he really will repay, that vengeance is his, so also to reject those things is to subject ourselves to torture. Now again, most of you don't like thinking of God this way. This is, this is counterintuitive, countercultural, right? The idea that there is wrath in, in, in the God who has created all things, like we, we don't like that. But I just wanna encourage you, that's part of God's love. His wrath and anger is a result of his love. Because after all, you might say, I don't believe in wrath, but wait until I hurt someone or something you really, really love, right? And your wrath towards me, right? And that, and that injustice is a reflection of your love. So also here, we're meant to see through this and realize that the torture, this rejection from the king, I mean, good grief. The anger of his master delivered him to the jailer, jailers until he should pay all his debt. There's this idea that like, he will be experiencing this consequence that's unpayable forever. Now, I say that we don't want to be any more fire and brimstone than Jesus is, but we are to the extent that Jesus is. And I want to say this, this, this might have been used as a, an unhelpful warning against you. Fear, and in this case, like shock, shocking, you know, uh, shocking revelation of judgment and God's anger against sin, is not a sufficient motivation. It wears off. Fear only lasts a certain while, right? Then it wears off. But it does serve as a helpful warning. The way I describe it is like, fear is not a very good starter, but it is a good stopper. Like you, can't, you won't ulti- ultimately be motivated by fear in, in a way that's faithful or good, but you can be stopped. Fear can make you look like, ooh, that's dangerous, and you stop from, and that's what we're meant to see here. Your unforgiveness is meant to, meant to draw our attention to something like, oh, if, if, you don't, if you don't see this, you're on your way to harm. And then the parable shows us that unforgiveness leads to torture. We are often the most unforgiving and judgmental towards the sin with which we have no struggle. Now, I said that just a moment ago, that kind of a little bit differently. Like the thing that really bothers you about other people is the thing that you, know, you see, that you're afraid of seeing in yourself or maybe you're just the most afraid of it coming up, but it's also the case that often we're most unforgiving and judgmental towards people who sin in ways that we won't. And we tend to measure on a weird, corrupt, manipulative curve, right? It's easy to demonize those people for the things that they've done that you've never been tempted with. And so just recognize that's, that's part of this parable, is that you'll begin to see like, oh, we can, as Jesus used the words, hypocritically look at the sin in others and somehow think it's worse than our own. And one of the ways that shows up is that we see the sin in others and instead of showing compassion, like, man, I, I can imagine what it would be like to be in that city. We're like that, like, I can see myself in that. We go like, there's no way. There's no way I would do that. And much of the polarization that you kind of experience in our, even like right now, in this kind of swing of our, the swing of the pendulum in our current culture is this. It's like a bunch of people who are like, those people over there are the worst. They're the absolute worst. Because they're doing something like, well, do you have any problem with that? No. And then those people are like, no, those people are the worst. And it's like, well, do you have a problem with that? No, I don't. And, and, and rather than like passing on compassion, like, oh man, that must be tough for you. Yeah, that must be tough for you. The opposite happens, right? Like you're the worst. You're the problem. And I'm here because I'm not the worst to fix it, right? And just, just be very careful. If unforgiveness leads to torture, then one of the ways you know this is that you can be incredibly merciful and compassionate towards sins that you struggle with. And you can be incredibly vindictive. I mean, I mean after all, like, you're an expert lawyer with the sins you struggle with. right? The sins you commit, like you're, I mean, you're a litigator. You're like, well, let me tell you the circumstances. Actually, this is what really happened. right? But when you see the sins of others, it's just boom, seeing red, black and white. There it is that's awful, that's the worst, no exceptions, get out, right? And so, if you're convinced in your mind that there really is this one really wicked sin, and that that sin is above all, and it's destroying all the things that you value and hold dear, it's most often a sin that you don't even struggle with, you're not even tempted by. And just recognize, you're doing the thing that will get you sent to hell. You're seeing the sin of others in a way that's so disproportionate that it makes yours look not that bad. And just be very careful, right? I, I, I think this is for Christians, I want Christians to be saturating the culture. I want Christians in law enforcement, education, medicine, entrepreneurs. want Christians. I want, I want Christians faithfully present in politics and business, I, all over, right? I want faithful Christians present everywhere, right? And so one of the temptations of that we see, especially in like partisan political politics, I think you can see this pretty loud and clear. If not, I'm just content to you kind of my observation. Like right now, the loudest voices in kind of the, the hyper-partisan culture is like, that's what's really wrong. That's really awful. And all I'll tell you is that if you only love your political party's view of justice, you don't love justice. You just love your political party, okay? Admit it. You like justice for your team. Fair, okay? But just understand that will that will hinder your ability to experience forgiveness. It will, it, it will hinder your ability to express and give forgiveness because after all those people over there on another team, they do stuff you would never do, and they're saying the same thing. So just be careful how that will how engaging in that in that sphere is going to be tempting for us. It's going to draw us away from the heart of the God uh, the heart of, and the character of the king who is perfectly just. And this whole like think about the what aboutism right it's a red herring it's a it's a it's a it's a broken logic if someone goes like well look at this sin and you go like oh yeah well what about this other sin notice in the heart of god there was no what aboutism uh in the heart of god there was perfect justice there was perfect righteousness and just be very be very wary that's exactly what this that's exactly what this parable is it's a what aboutism it's like a it, it's like you can kind of hear you can kind of see it like well I know my debt, like it's as, it's as if the, the wicked servant is like, I know my debt's unpayable and awful, but what about this other guy who could pay this one off in three, in three months, right? And it's like, thankfully the parable gives us a window into the heart of God that's perfectly righteous and just, and it's meant to serve as a rebuke for us because we're so biased. We tend to see justice through our own lens, and we see it through the lens of our own sin. So just beware of it. Just be, beware of, of kind of the, the tendency to be most unforgiving and judgmental towards a sin with which you have no struggle and you think you're the expert on. Finally and ultimately, unforgiveness for a Christian is not just troublesome, it's wicked. I mean, it ends dark, doesn't it? And I, I, wish, I wish I could be like, oh, and Jesus is like, and they live happily ever after. But that's not true, and that's not real. That's not what sin really is. It looks at the brokenness that exists and offers wrath because of the injustice and wickedness. Now, you can kind of see it. I think just a little preview. There's so many things in this parable I, I commend to your own imagination, but one of them you see at the very beginning whenever the, the king pulls the wicked aside, or the servant, um, the plea is, I'll pay it back. If you'll just have pity on me I'll pay you everything verse 26 says just notice that's a false kind of repentance the 10,000 talents was meant to be a picture of the unpayable debt and any sort of self-reliance on our part will actually be a false a false kind of a false kind of repentance and he says no ultimately this is an unpayable debt and yet the king is good enough to forgive and so if you receive forgiveness, for the unpayable debt, of sin against a righteous and perfect and holy God, then it changes you. Now there's a couple of half-truths here. Uh, one of them is like the idea that if you forgive from the heart, then you don't need to go to that person. That's a form of apathy. I'd be wary of that. One of the other half-truths is like, unless the person asks for forgiveness, then you don't have to forgive them. No, because even then, you know this, even if a person does ask for for forgiveness, it's never quite like you wish it was, you know, it's never quite as, they didn't apologize exactly like you wanted to, right? It's pretty vindictive. So uh, beware of the temptations to pit forgiveness against justice. Forgiveness and justice are not antithetical. In fact, they necessitate one another. Think about the components there. If you don't really see the humanity in an offender, then what you will do is not justice, it will be vengeance. You will treat them as an animal as less than human. Also, you see, like, the, to set them free. If, if you don't ultimately think of a time when the debt will be paid, then it's not justice, it's vengeance, right? And you're, you're trying to extract from them something that ultimately they'll never get free from. And then lastly, like, they cancel or forgive. If, if you can't imagine a scenario where this debt is fully paid, then it's not justice, it's vengeance. So, so forgiveness and justice are not antithetical to one another. Don't pit forgiveness against flippancy. To show mercy is not to condone the offense. Forgiveness does not condone the sin, not at all. We saw that in the previous chapter. But instead, it sees it for what it is and moves toward in order to make it right. And we're manipulative. We can use forgiveness as an excuse to ignore, we can use forgiveness manipulatively as a means to ignore accountability. It's true. That's true because you can hold someone accountable and forgive them. They're not against one another. Forgiveness is also not to be confused with minimizing or or letting them get away with it. We can't pit forgiveness against the safety of the person harmed. To show mercy is to put the person at risk. That's that's what everyone tells you. If I forgive this person, then everyone's in danger. No, no. And while it is absolutely true that it is not loving to to simply allow or overlook someone who goes on sinning, Jesus says ultimately that's not the problem here. The problem is that unforgiveness puts your soul at risk. And so, friend, I know that that person did an awful thing to you, but being a perpetual victim is a way of perpetually making them pay. And I know that feels good. It feels really good. But I'd be... I'd be remiss not to tell you that puts your soul at danger. And yes, we're manipulative. We can use what we know about trauma and its effects in order to withhold a grudge, to not forgive and to rebel against the work of Jesus. But just because we are good and wise to get the victim a safe distance from the offender does not mean that the victim does not have a soul liable and prone to unforgiveness. Unforgiveness for the Christians not just troublesome; it's wicked. It's a it's a rebellion against the heart of God. So what do we do, right? I've just given you the gauntlet of forgiveness, right? Now this is where I heard one pastor say it this way: It's kind of like, you good? All right, you guys are just gonna go out there forgiving everybody this week. It's gonna be awesome. Let's go, right? Whoo, go forgive. You know that's not true. Because you know you don't have the ability to forgive just naturally. And so, if you find yourself going like, I still can't see how I could possibly forgive, then look at the parable. Look at what the parable says is our solution. Consider. See the juxtaposition of the heart and character of the king and the heart and the character of the wicked servant. Consider the great forgiveness that we have received in Christ. Consider the great freedom that we have been given in Christ. And consider the great debt that was paid in Christ. Do you remember those three components? Deep compassion. Some commentators like J.C. Ryle will, 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 will show us that like, this word compassion is Jesus' word. In Matthew 9, it says that when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion for them and he healed them. Saw them as a sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, when Jesus went ashore, he saw the great crowd. He what? He had compassion on them. He healed them again. Matthew 15, Jesus saw the, his disciples and the crowds, and he says, I have compassion on them, and so he feeds them miraculously. Matthew 18, what we find here, out of pity, the master moves toward the servant to release him of the debt, and we'll see in chapter 20, Jesus touches and heals because he had pity and compassion. This is Jesus' word. And the only way you're going to have the compassion to see the humanity in others, to put yourself in their shoes and to have your heart go out to them is to behold the one whose heart came out to us. And while our disposition is to be the wicked servant who places ourselves in the position of the judge and king, behold the mystery that the righteous judge and king put himself in the place of the wicked servant. We can have our heart go out to others because we behold the mystery of his heart coming out to us. And while we regularly minimize our own sin, behold, Jesus took on the sin that he did not commit. Consider also the freedom that we have in Christ, right? All you, if, you, if you're memorizing Bible people, you'll, you'll be able to fill in the blank. Whom the Son has freed is free indeed. It's like, no, Really? It's like God's forgiveness for you and for me in Christ. It's it's like, no, really. I was like, oh, you're free. You, you you you, You never pay the penalty of sin ever again because Jesus has paid for it. No, really. And then lastly, no one ever paid a debt like Jesus did. Consider. So in a moment, we're gonna do just that. It's our custom to serve and celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, as you might call it, that is the body and the blood of Christ that we celebrate in communion. And where someone will declare to you a mystery, that the body of Christ was broken for you, and the blood of Christ was poured out for you. And so, as we take communion, we're in in effect considering, remembering all that we have been forgiven of. We're remembering the great cost that was paid. We're remembering the great compassion that God has shown us in Christ. We're remembering that the heart of God has come out to us to take our place. We're remembering that we are now fully free. So in just a moment, we're going to stand together. We're going to sing and reflect upon this. And as you're ready, you're going to make your way to some of the tables. I'm going to direct our traffic for just a moment. You'll see a table where someone will save you, uh, serve you a wafer and, and a cup where you can uh, right there uh, participate. As, as we take in the body of Christ through the wafer, we're, we're taking in the, the price that was paid. As we're taking in the blood of Christ, we're taking in the price that was paid for us. So you to stay to the right. Uh, work in a, in a clockwise fashion. If you just stay to the right, if you work towards each table as it works to the right, you'll, it'll work. Uh, off to my far right and your, your back left, there's a, a gluten free option. You'll just kind of stay to the right, even in the rows. You, you'll make your way to each of those tables. And someone will declare to you a mystery, a mystery that will even free you to forgive others. You have been forgiven. The God of the universe has identified with you and taken your place. He has shown you compassion that we could not imagine. He has set you free from the penalty and bondage of sin. And he has paid all that we would owe. The unpayable, incalculable debt that we have owed is now completely paid. You know this is true. The gospel writers tell us that one of the last words of Jesus on the cross is, it is finished. Te telestai, the tense of that word is is translated, it is finished, but all the financial nerds in the room know what I'm about to say. It's actually a financial turn where the Son of God taking the place of woeful wicked sinners says, paid in full. Let's thank God as we reflect upon that, consider that and respond in faith. Jesus, thank you so much that you are so kind and good to us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to pay a debt we could never pay on our own, and then to set us free, to set us free, and to cancel all that we have owed. Lord, for many of us, the ways that That seems untrue or the ways that we hold grudges and and are unforgiving towards others. I know even right now the thought of forgiving others, it, it seems daunting for us. But help us to see that's because we're not looking at the character of the king who has forgiven us. Help us to even now, even for some in this room who have been harmed and hurt incalculably, Lord, even now, allow them in their sorrow and hurt and grief to turn ever so slightly to look at the Savior. To turn, to look upon, to consider the one who has paid. Help us to trust that vengeance really is yours, that sin is paid for. It will be paid for by those who come to Jesus and have it paid for completely at the cross. Otherwise, it will be paid for apart from them and themselves. So let us turn from that future. Let us turn towards the mercy that we're offered freely in Jesus. As we reflect now and prepare to take the Lord's Supper, to meet at a table where we find that the debt has been paid by the body and blood of Christ, help us not to approach this table in an unworthy manner. Help us to repent of sin and look to the Savior as we remember and consider the price that he has paid to forgive, to cancel, and to set free the wicked captives. Praise be to God that you have done this for us in Jesus. Amen.